Hello and welcome to Status, an audio journal and sister organization of Jadalia as part of the Arab Studies Institute. My name is Nuda Arakat and I am speaking with Dr. Gary Foley, who is an Aboriginal man of Gumbanja descent in Australia. The Gumbanja Nation is one of 500 Aboriginal nations in Australia. Dr. Foley is a scholar, an actor, a writer, and he has been a central protagonist and leader of Aboriginal resistance movements for decades. He was expelled from school at age 15 for racist reasons, and after many, many years, came back to school to earn his doctorate and is now um, continues his work as an advocate and a scholar. Welcome with us, Dr. Gary Foley. Good to be with you. Right before we started this interview, you told me a little bit about, you know, because I, I had mentioned that I'd seen that the bit about being expelled from school is every part of your uh, biography, your available biography. And you you commented on what that experience has meant for you and how it shaped your journey. Can you tell our listeners about that? Um, in, right up until the late 1960s in Australia, Aboriginal people were systematically and deliberately denied educational opportunities. So that when I went to high school, I was the first Aboriginal person to go past fourth year in high school, in the high school I was going to. It was in an extraordinarily racist uh, part of um, Australia in northern north of Sydney. And uh, when I was uh, 16, uh, the headmaster just the year before I was due to finish my high school education, the headmaster called me into his office and he said, don't come back next year, Foley. And I said, what do you mean? And he terminated my education by with these words. He said, we don't want your kind here. And by doing that, he destroyed my self-esteem. He destroyed my, he damaged my self-esteem. He damaged my self-confidence. But worst of all, he effectively destroyed my belief in education to the extent that it was 30 years before I finally came back to uh, education when I was insulted by an academic at the University of Melbourne who suggested I was somehow a lesser person because I didn't have uh, formal academic qualifications. And I took that as a challenge at the age of 46 and uh, went to Melbourne University completed um, uh, a, a degree in history, uh, first class honours, and uh, I went on to win the uh, University of Melbourne Chancellor's Award for Excellence for my PhD, which um, you know rest <laughs> restored my belief in education, I suppose. Well, congratulations on that. But I think what your story is, I mean, congratulations on much more, obviously, and what your story is telling us is you know, a form of structural racism in Australia that I think a lot of our listeners would would be able to grasp conceptually as what a settler state and how it treats a native population that it marks for erasure and elimination. Can you give us a little bit more texture about the specificity of uh, your struggle in Australia? why it was until 1967 that you were denied, um, communities were denied formal education. Australia had a system of apartheid that preceded the system in South Africa. And the, the only real difference between the South African uh, version of apartheid and the Australian version 
was that uh, in South Africa it was imposed against a majority of the population, whereas in Australia, uh, Aboriginal people represented very much a minority of the population, partly because after the invasion of our country by the British and the uh, occupation and the theft of our lands, um, uh, there was a systematic attempt to eliminate Aboriginal people. Eugenics was a very big uh, idea in Australia in the in the mid uh, 19th century, and that led to uh, notions of uh, um, eradication of Aboriginal people. Uh, when Australia became Australia in 1901, Aboriginal people at that point in time, Aboriginal people were not recognised as human beings. Even uh, we were not recognised in the Constitution of Australia. And the Australian various state governments in Australia developed uh, assimilation policies that were designed to uh, get rid of Aboriginal people. The official Australian government policy, assimilation of Aboriginal people, lasted until 1967. And the whole idea of a policy of assimilation is that the end result should be that there were no Aboriginal people. So we were subjected to... In the first instance, a policy of genocide by massacre and mass murder. Uh, and when that became uh, unpopular with the British back in England, uh, the policy in Australia changed to a more subtle form of elimination in the form of a policy of assimilation that was designed to uh, turn what was left of the Aboriginal people into white Australians, thereby eradicating a racial problem that they thought might emerge. And so I grew up under a system, under an apartheid system in Australia, where Aboriginal people were deliberately uh, not only separated from mainstream Australia, but were subjected in, as I said, to uh, deliberately imposed restrictions on access to education. I was very lucky because my great-grandfather had been one of the founders of the first Aboriginal political organisation in Australia in the 1920s, and he had created sufficient possibilities to enable me uh, many years later in the 1960s to actually uh, be attending a mainstream high school. But like I said, that didn't last long. I mean, it la I didn't manage to complete my high school education because of the deeply embedded racism that uh, was still deciding policy and, you know, imposed upon me by expelling me because they didn't want Aboriginal people in their school. So you mentioned... 1967 as the moment when a formal system of racial subjugation and genocide against Aboriginals is ended, and it's a shift. That's the year that there was a referendum where 90% of Australians voted that Aboriginals deserve to live a better life. Can you tell us about the significance of that, that referendum, and, and what other factors led to the study I guess, disintegration of that formal system? Well, um, the 1967 referendum and the ending of the formal system of apartheid in, the, in various states in Australia did not bring an end to uh, the oppression and the, and the genocide. That continues mm -hmm. to this day. The extraordinary thing about the 1967 referendum was that it came about after a 10-year campaign by... An, an Aboriginal organisation, National Aboriginal Organisation called the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. 
it was probably the Australian equivalent of the American NAACP in that it was uh, a fairly conservative organisation. It was influenced heavy by, heavily by uh, Christian ideas and things like that. And it was a, you know, a campaign. Nevertheless, it was a campaign that took place over 10 years, which finally resulted in the extraordinary 1967 referendum. In that referendum, it's a historic moment in Australian society because at that moment in Australian history, in excess of 90% of the Australian people clearly expressed that they believed that the Aboriginal people deserved justice. That brought to an end the apartheid system, but it didn't change uh, federal government policy. I mean, the federal government effectively ignored the final results of the referendum so that, so that after 1967, very little changed for Aboriginal people. In fact, with the dismantling of the old apartheid system, tens of thousands of Aboriginal people in New South Wales, the state I was living in, were left abandoned. And there was this mass exodus to the city, which was Sydney, the capital city of uh, New South Wales, so that the Aboriginal population of Sydney grew from about 1,500 when I first moved there in 1966 to 35,000 within a space of three years. This was an extraordinary mass exodus of Aboriginal people from the rural areas. Now, because the referendum uh, effectively was seen by Aboriginal people not to have brought about the change we were expecting, a younger generation, my generation, of political activists emerged who rejected the policies of the old, older, more conservative generation because we believed that their tactics and strategies through bringing about the referendum had failed. And that was what led into the next thing we're probably going to talk about, which was the Black Power Movement in Australia, which was very much a younger generation rejection of the older tactics and strategies and the development of a new tactics and strategy to it to try and bring about the change that we wanted, that the referendum didn't really bring. Indeed, I do want to walk through the Black Power Movement, but I want to maybe take a step back, just if you can walk us back for our listeners and for our own education. The referendum itself, you said, created a big mess and an exodus from the rural areas of Aboriginal people into the cities, right? The, this, infl- this inflation of, of the population of Sydney in a span of three years. What it sounds like is that prior to this policy, that Aboriginal communities were confined to the rural areas almost as like reservations. Absolutely. So can you, exactly. So can you tell us a little bit more about that condition? Yes. Prior to the 1967 referendum and under the apartheid system in New South Wales, um, in excess of 50,000 Aboriginal people were confined to around 45,000 what were called reserves, Aboriginal reserves throughout the state of New South Wales. They were effectively concentration camps in the sense that Aboriginal people were were denied freedom of movement. You could not leave or enter an Aboriginal reserve without the permission of the white manager of that, white government manager of that reserve. Uh, And on those reserves, uh, Aboriginal people were subject to the complete control of the government-appointed manager who could put you to forced uh, labour. He could uh, even, uh, even decide who married who. And in order to leave the, the reserve to maybe go and visit some of your relatives on another reserve, you had to make special application to the manager who then referred it to the head office in Sydney and a whole um, system was designed to restrict and control, uh, contain 
the Aboriginal people. After 1967, the state government in New South Wales um, uh, closed down that system in response to the 67 referendum. But all that did was um, leave those 50,000 Aboriginal people in the rural areas abandoned. And there was no, because there was a rural recession in New South Wales in 1967, there was no possibility of Aboriginal people getting work in the rural areas. And that was what led to this dramatic exodus to the, to the city in 1967, which resulted in um, a huge Aboriginal community congregating in the slums in Sydney in a place called Redfern, because all of the people who arrived in Sydney after 1967 were impoverished, landless refugees. And uh, that led to the creation of this huge, the biggest Aboriginal community that had ever existed in Australia, 35,000 people in the um, slums of uh, Sydney. Given that the conservative organization that preceded the Black Power movement, I- I'm assuming is, is was the engine, this 10-year campaign, effectively dismantled the reserve system. Why did young people still identify them as a failure? Because the older generation who were part of that campaign had encouraged younger, gener- younger people like myself to become involved in the campaign on the basis that they said, if we can get a yes vote in this referendum, then things will change for us Aboriginal people. Uh, With the closure of the reserves in New South Wales and the mass exodus to the city, that actually created a bigger problem than almost had existed prior to that. Um, The other problem that the younger generation had with the old Federal Council for the Advancement of Aboriginal People and Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders was that that organisation, our only national Aboriginal political organisation that had emerged from the 1950s, was not in fact controlled by Aboriginal people. And this was a problem for us younger, more educated, you know, even though I'd been thrown out of school, I'd still received more education than, you know, most of the older generation. And us, we of the younger generation uh, saw that what we really needed, if we were going to talk about self-determination, uh, was that we needed to control our own political organisations. And that organisation was not controlled by Aboriginal people. And that was another factor in the disillusionment between the younger generation and the older generation. So now we're in the post-1967 moment. There's disillusionment with the older generation. There's a new problem that hadn't been anticipated with the end of the reserve system. And can it, does the Black Power movement begin to congeal or is it after McMahon's statement on, on January 26, 1972, that, that's the catalyst for the Black Power movement. No, no, the uh, McMahon statement in 1972 was as a result of the Black Power movement. Fantastic. You see, okay. in the late, after 1967, by 1969, there was a huge Aboriginal community in Sydney, impoverished and ironically very dynamic. It was a, in one way for a young person in, 19, in 1968, it was an interesting time for me to turn 18. There was all sorts of things happening in Australia, uh, there was a big anti-Vietnam War movement happening amongst uh, white students and others. We were very much, we, be, we, we younger generation were becoming very much aware of the changes that were occurring in the colonised world, uh, where um, many countries were becoming decolonised. Uh, uh, we were conscious of uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh kicking the French out of Indochina. We were conscious of what had happened uh, in Cuba. 
We were aware of events in Africa. We were very interested in what was going on in the United States of America, especially in Oakland, California, because we we were making contact with African-American soldiers who were being um, brought to Sydney from Vietnam because, you know, many of the military who were sent by the American army to Vietnam to use as cannon fodder were African-Americans. And American soldiers were being sent to Australia on what they <clears throat> on what they called R and R, rest and recuperation. And so a lot of these African American soldiers, when they arrived in Sydney, said, "Where's the black community?" And there was no black community except for us. And so they, many of them, came and connected with us. And with them, they bought news of what had been going on in America in the more radical branches of the American civil rights movement. They also bought us African-American literature that we were not able to get in Australia at the time, uh, books such as Seize the Time by Bobby Searle. And we began to learn what was going on in Oakland, California, with, especially with the Black Panther Party. That we were, we were interested in that because what we saw in our community in Redfern in terms of police harassment and intimidation, which had developed after a huge black community uh, was set up in Sydney, uh, what we saw in our community in Redfern, we thought was very similar to the circumstances that we were reading about and hearing about what was going on in Oakland, California. And we were interested in the response uh, that was being developed, the tactics and strategies that were being developed to counter things like um, poverty, things like uh, police uh, harassment, police intimidation. We were interested in the, the tactics that the Black Panther Party had developed in America. And uh, we um, began to politically educate ourselves, the younger generation. And like I said, we were looking for different tactics to the older generation. And through the, um, what we saw as going on in the more radical branches of the African-American movement, uh, and to, at that stage, to a lesser extent, the um, Native American movement too, uh, we were particularly interested in the occupation of Alcatraz by the American Indian movement, uh, which was to have an interesting effect further down the track for us. But we we developed through that. That's how come the black power movement developed in Australia. We used the term black at the time because uh, black had been for many decades in Australia used as a derogatory term to denigrate Aboriginal people. You know, white people used to talk about, oh, those damn blacks, you know, and use it as a... Um, as a as a, a term to denigrate us. And we said, well, okay, you call us blacks, we'll call ourselves blacks. We appropriated that term and said, yeah, we're black, we're black and we're proud, which in a way was a, a, a reflection also on what the African-American, the Black Panther Party and the other radical sections of the Black American movement were doing. And so we appropriated the term and took, took it upon ourselves, okay, we're black, go to hell. We're black and we're proud, and we'll say that we're black. And and in doing that, hoping to diffuse the power of the use of that term black against us. And so uh, the black power movement in Australia, it began as a little group of people in Redfern, young people, having a discussion group, and it grew as uh, we developed our tactics and strategies to counter the police harassment in Redfern. And uh, we eventually adopting and adapting certain ideas from America, uh, created the first ever shopfront free legal aid centre in Australia. We introduced legal aid to the Australian community when we set up an uh, Aboriginal legal service. 
which was not only... Gary, before, rest- before we get into the legal aid center, because yeah. I know that's also part of the story of how you, you know, your travels of developing different yeah. legal aid centers, I just want to pause for a second and think about the use of Black in or, uh, to describe Aboriginal communities. And, and, and what, what a fascinating story that it's, it's a story of reappropriation for empowerment yeah. and the synergy with the United States. But how did Aboriginals describe themselves? So I'm I'm both interested in and in how you know white settler you know white Australians are are describing you and choosing black to do that. I mean, if you have any insight on why they were doing that, and then how Aboriginal communities were describing themselves. Um, like I said, there's there was about uh, 500 different Aboriginal um, nations around Australia, and it varied. Um, where I came from on the north coast of New South Wales, we had a Gumbanja word for ourselves, which was Guri. When I arrived, when I arrived in Sydney, the popular term, even though there was a mixture of many different nations of people within that big Redfern community, the broader term that people uh, used for themselves was Kuri, uh, starting with a K instead of a G. Um, mm-hmm. If you went over to South Australia, in the south of South Australia, the term for themselves was Nunga. In uh, Western Australia, in the south of Western Australia, the term was Noongar. In Queensland. Uh, in the north to the north of New South Wales, uh, the general term in the south of Queensland was Murray. And then also various different uh, nations had, you know, there was many terms that we used for ourselves. But in the late 60s, as the old apartheid system broke down and and many different uh, nations came together in the big communities like Redfern in Sydney and in South Brisbane and Fitzroy in Melbourne, People either use the terms kuris, guris, uh, nungas, or uh, a more general term we call ourselves anyway, again in part rejecting the way the white fellas call us black, we call ourselves black fellas, you know. And again, this was uh, un- an unwitting use of the term at, in the early stages to, to probably in an attempt to diffuse a bit the uh, power that the, the term black had when they used when whitefellas used it against us. So there was a multitude of uh, terms, but when the Black Power Movement emerged, uh, it was in part adopting a term from America, but it was also, like I said, um, uh, an attempt to uh, uh, diffuse the power that the term, the way in which the term had been being used uh, by white Australians against us. Was it also in, in, in a, conscious, a conscious attempt to identify your treatment as a racialized treatment? I mean, you describe your treatment as living under an apartheid regime. You describe it as akin to the ghettoization, over-policing. So are you, is the community politically and deliberately identifying their condition as a racialized one that's equated to blackness? We were very conscious of our, that what we were confronted with was a race Thing. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like right from my great grandfather's time, you know, we had been subjected to to uh, all manner of uh, deliberate sort of racial uh, based policies. Uh, the whole eugenics movement uh, led to in the 1930s in Australia uh, racial experiments with us that were almost identical to some of the racial experiments that were being conducted in Nazi Germany. You know, there was uh, the the so-called protector. Who, I mean, the, the irony of the terminology in the history of Australia is that the, the main government official in the state of Western Australia 
was called a protector of Aboriginal people, when in fact, you know, <laughs> he was anything but a, a protector. Mm -hmm. uh, in the film Rabbit Proof Fence, which was many people in the rest of the world should know a little bit about Australia about, the key um, um, character in that is the protector of Aborigines in Western Australia. This man was conducting uh, racial experiments among Aboriginal people. He insisted, and he wrote a book about this, and he's got this photographs that he took where he attempted to prove that he could breed the Aboriginality out of an Aboriginal person in three generations. This was He was one of the primary advocates of eugenics in Australia, and he set about to prove that, and he had the power as the official the head official responsible for Aboriginal people in Western Australia, he had the power to actually take Aboriginal people and subject them to racial experimentation. You know? And like I say, uh, the photographs that are in his books are very similar. I showed them, showed them to my students. They're very similar to the photographs taken in the concentration camps in Germany in the 1930s. And the ideology that, undermine, under, that underpins those racial experiments in Australia were identical to the to the racial theories of the Nazi Germany. You know, not a lot of people uh, in Australia even know about their own history in terms of this these sort of uh, uh, genocidal policies that were implemented against us. It's true, and it's 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 interesting. Even as you are telling the story of Australia, it also begins and and the way that you say, you know the. It, this precedes even an articulation of apartheid in South Africa that Australians are experiencing it. It makes us rethink this kind of, you know, uh, temporal narrative of where race is theorized and first theorized and why. Um, so this is also really interesting for us to rethink how could we have, you know, constructed a different history of, of racial theory um, leading up to the present. So based on that, based on that, now you there's a Black Power movement that is congealed. It's in, in it's in you know I guess the context of third world upheaval that you're describing. You know national liberation wars across the African continent. There's an imperial war in in Vietnam. We're, and and there's also you know this is also part of what's happening in the United States in a post 1968 moment of revolt. And now it's come to Australia and you are at the center of it. You and your comrades are at the center of it um, leading up to how, how does your work then precipitate McMahon's, I guess, statement on January 26, 1972, which is uh, for, for the settler community known as Australia Day, but for the indigenous community is the day of invasion. Well, the once the black the black power movement gained credibility in our own communities, in our own Aboriginal communities, by in a similar way as what the Black Panther Party attempted to do in Oakland, California. We adopted and adapted many of the ideas that we were seeing going on there. We created a legal aid centre in uh, Redfern, which meant for the first time many of the Aboriginal people who have been arbitrarily arrested and, and uh, slung in jail on trumped-up charges. For the first time, the members of that Aboriginal community were able to defend themselves in court. And that brought about a significant change of attitude within the community. They saw that this younger generation of uh, political activists were not just uh, young people talking a load of rhetoric. 
they saw that we were actually determined to create better conditions within the community for everybody. Not long after the legal service was set up, we set up a free uh, health clinic, medical clinic in uh, Redfern, where for the first time, Aboriginal people could get free medical treatment. The, the health statistics at the time that we set that up in Australia for Aboriginal people were appalling. We had the highest infant mortality rate in the world, purely amongst Aboriginal people. We had the highest rate of blindness from a disease called trachoma of any people in the world. We had, we had the highest rate of uh, leprosy attack in, a, in the world. This is in, a, this is in a country that was still pretending to the rest of the world that they were a, uh, an advanced uh, white civilised nation, you know, and yet they effectively managed to hide all of this from the rest of the world and create an image of Australia as a, as a, as a you know, uh, a nice, uh, you know, respectable uh, nation. Nothing could be further. So within our communities, we started addressing the problems that existed within our communities. We set up a Breakfast for Children program along the lines of the Black Panther Party. And in doing so, we managed to get large amounts of support from the broader Aboriginal community. And we started um, uh, having major demonstrations calling for land rights. We developed an ideology that said what we... It was. We called ourselves the self-determination movement. Some people called us the Black Power movement. Some people, you know, there's a range of terms for us. But what we were about was we believed that Aboriginal people need to regain control of their own destiny, control of their own affairs. After a hundred, almost 100 years of government uh, control of our lives, we were determined to develop a, uh, a, a, an idea whereby we could regain control, you know, self-determination and economic and political independence for ourselves again for the first time since our, the invasion of our land. Now, that involved an issue called land rights. We were calling for the return of lands to us to enable us to build uh, whatever economic structures that would enable us to gain economic independence, which we saw was the key to genuine self-determination and genuine political independence. And so we started having major demonstrations around the capital cities of Australia, uh, which were getting bigger all the time in uh, the early 1970s, and making, you know, the government in Canberra, McMahon, uh, the Prime Minister, wasn't taking much notice. But then in 1971, the South African rugby team, the Springboks, came to Australia. And this was a key factor in uh, boosting the Aboriginal uh, land rights movement, because uh, suddenly a large number of white Australians were uh, set up an anti-apartheid movement and were demonstrating against the arrival of uh, uh, white uh, South African sporting bodies in Australia. And it was very easy for us to go and challenge those anti-apartheid people and say, well, hang on a sec, it's all fine for you to be demonstrating against racism halfway around the world, but what about racism here and in Australia? And in your own backyard, where you yourself may have to uh, consider yourselves as being part of the problem. And to their credit, the anti-apartheid movement accepted uh, our challenge. We said, if you, if you are really genuine about anti-racism, you must join us in our cause here and march with us in the streets of Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane for our cause, you know, for our just cause as well. And they did, and that suddenly boosted the numbers that were demonstrating in, in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane to, you know, tens of thousands of people were suddenly marching in the streets of Australia calling for land rights for Aboriginal people. Now, this is what started to make 
uh, the McMahon government very nervous. And this is what led into the biggest mistake that uh, Mr. William McMahon, the then Prime Minister of Australia, ever made. Uh, he felt that he needed to make a, uh, uh, a formal policy statement on Aboriginal land rights because of the, the increasing pressure. And remember, this is, not, this is only five years after 90% of the Australian people had voted in support of justice for Aboriginal people. Uh, there was large um, uh, support in the mainstream media for our cause, uh, the cause of land rights. And so the Prime Minister, the federal government, felt compelled to make a statement. And the only trouble is that he made the major political mistake of making his statement on the most sensitive day in the Australian political calendar for Aboriginal people, the day that mm -hmm. all of Australia the day that all the rest of Australia call Australia Day, celebrates the arrival of uh, the British in Australia. Uh, to Aboriginal people since the 1930s, it had been called a day of mourning or invasion day. And so by choosing that day to make a statement whereby he, the Prime Minister, was going to reject the proposition that Aboriginal people should have land rights, that all that did was throw throw petrol on the fire, if you like. You know, it uh, really ignited um, uh, an act, a political action that ultimately brought down the Australian government, and that was the Aboriginal Embassy. So this is obviously the famed um, encampment of uh, the Aboriginal Embassy is the famed encampment for six months of Aboriginal communities from across Australia in front of Parliament on the lawns in front of Parliament based on what you describe as an unknown accident. The idea was that communities were to set up the encampment, become get arrested oh. in order to oh. voice opposition. But what you find is that there's a loophole. There's no law that prohibits you from actually staying. So you're not getting yes. arrested when you first arrive. The night after McMahon, the night of Billy McMahon's statement on the 26th of January 1972, there was a meeting of the Black Power Movement in Sydney. We decided that we needed to uh, show this government that we absolutely rejected uh, the Prime Minister's statement. A group of four men were dispatched to Canberra. The idea, the original idea was simply to set up a little protest on the lawn. We'd arranged for the Canberra newspapers to take a photograph. We believed that uh, the four men in question we sent down would be arrested. We, we said to them, Set up a little protest on the lawns of Palmer House. Try and hang in there long enough for the for the newspaper to get a photograph of you, so that when the prime minister wakes up the next morning, he'll uh, choke on his cornflakes when he sees the few blackfellas sitting on in the lawn of Parliament House. We believed that they would get arrested. We said to them, "When you get arrested, spend the night in the cells. It'll probably be warmer in the cells anyway, and we'll come down and bail you out tomorrow." That's all we. That's all it was intended to be. But by accident, by setting up the protest on the lawns, the four uh, Aboriginal men accidentally discovered that there was a loophole in Canberra law. When the police turned up, instead of arresting them, the police informed them that there was, in fact, no law uh, that uh, stopped them from camping on the lawn, as long as there was only ever 11 tents. And so by accidentally discovering this uh, loophole in the law, we were able to set up a, an encampment on the lawns of Parliament House. Which one of the one of our one of the four guys who went down, a man called Tony Curry, 
deemed he was uh, the poet of the Black Power movement. He said, we'll call this the Aboriginal Embassy. He said, the Prime Minister's statement has effectively declared us aliens in our own land. If we're aliens in our own land, then we, like all other aliens, will have an embassy. Only our embassy will be on the front lawn of Parliament House. It will reflect the act accurately reflect the living conditions of Aboriginal people in Australia today. It'll be a bunch of tents, and every time any of those politicians walk out of the gas works across the road, the first thing they're going to see is a bunch of blackfellas camped on their lawn. It was a stroke of genius. You know, by calling it the Aboriginal Embassy, it captured the imagination of not only Australia, but the world. And, and it was that um, uh, protest that managed to stay there for six months that made the rest of the world aware that there was a racial issue in Australia, that it was about land, that about that it involved the Indigenous people of Australia. It effectively destroyed Australia's um, image in the world as a nice, racially harmonious nation. You know? And so it was uh, the most effective thing that the Black Power movement ever did. And it lasted for six months. And in the course of that, by the end of it, there was something else that was really effective that came out of this movement, which was the Aboriginal flag which you are widely credited for creating. I was present when the Aboriginal flag was designed. It was designed by a man by the name of Harold Thomas. It was designed after a demonstration that had happened in Adelaide where I'd spoken and uh, Harold and I had gone back to his place that night. He was an artist. We talked about the fact that there was no real unifying symbol for the the newly emerging national land rights movement or black power movement or self-determination movement, whatever you want to call it. And so we sat down that night and Harold uh, designed the flag. And today I say to my students, you know, if you, my white students especially, if you go overseas with a backpack, don't put an Australian flag on the back of your backpack because people won't know what that is. But if you put an Aboriginal flag on the back of your backpack, people all over the world, identify and know that flag. I've seen that flag find demonstrations in South America, in the Middle East, in Africa, in, in America, in Canada, all over the world. You know, people, as a bit of graphic design, it was a pretty remarkably successful thing. Is it true that the original design begins as an iteration of the Black Power flag that's inspired by Marcus Garvey, that's black, red, and green? And then it takes on different iterations before it becomes the now black, red, and yellow. The um, Marcus Garvey-inspired flag was the first flag to fly in the early days of the Aboriginal Embassy in the first weeks. The guys who set up the embassy and uh, maintained it for the first few weeks decided that they need, needed a couple of flags there then. At that point, the Aboriginal flag had only been designed in Adelaide, and I'd bought the uh, design over to Sydney and was in the process of convincing my uh, Black Power Movement colleagues that this was uh, a truly original and effective uh, symbol for our movement. But in the first days of the Aboriginal Embassy, yes, the Marcus Garvey-inspired flag was uh, of old UNEA, I think it was, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, was the flag. And that's, in, that's an interesting connection too because the first modern Aboriginal political organisation set up by, among others, my great-grandfather back in the 1920s, had been uh, inspired by Marcus Garvey and also the visit to Australia in 1908 by Jack Johnson, the African-American world first black heavyweight champion of the world. All of these interesting um, connections and 
um, associations and adoptions of ideas and things are part of what makes the whole history of the Aboriginal political resistance in Australia so uh, fascinating for me as a historian anyway. Well, absolutely. And as an activist, I'm sure you described that this moment that the Aboriginal embassy ended in victory for Aboriginal communities that was later usurped from you by different interests, especially coal mining interests, right? Is that what it was? Mining and pastoral lobbies. But can you tell us about the immediate victories before that? Well, the, the embassy was so successful. I mean, toward, in, in July 1972, the then leader of the Australian opposition in Parliament, a man by the name of Gough Whitlam, who within six months would be the Prime Minister of Australia, he visited the embassy and uh, in response to a challenge by the embassy to his uh, political party, he came over and he said, look, all you Aboriginal people need to do is vote for us, the Labor Party, in the election at the end of the year and everything will be fine. He was challenged by one of our leaders, Paul Coe, who pointed out to Mr Whitlam that his party's political platform or policy on Aboriginal people was identical to the government across the road and had been. There had been um, a bipartisan policy on Aborigines ever since 1901 and that policy was assimilation. And as Paul Coe pointed out to Mr Whitlam, the, the desired end result of a policy of assimilation is that there be no Aboriginal people. In fact, it meant the genocide of Aboriginal people. Whitlam uh, accepted Coe's uh, proposition and went away and changed the policy of the Australian Labor Party to be land rights for Aboriginal people. That effectively brought an end to the era of assimilation in Australia. And so that in itself is a, an extraordinary achievement on the part of the embassy and the black power movement because that policy had existed since Australia became Australia in 1901. And so once that happened, the McMahon government realised that the Aboriginal embassy was gaining enormous, not only enormous support throughout the Australian community, but internationally as well. Journalists from 70 different countries had come to the embassy and written or, or did television reports on what was going on. The Aboriginal embassy had become a major embarrassment to the Australian government. And so in order to get rid of it, the government needed to introduce a new law, making it illegal to camp on the lawns of Parliament House. That's what they did. Within 10 minutes of it becoming law, the police moved in and smashed the Aboriginal embassy. And over three weeks, there were three major confrontations. And at the end of the day, um, the Aboriginal people decided, OK, we've achieved much more than we ever came here to achieve. We'll let it ride. And then six months later, uh, Whitlam becomes Prime Minister. And he always said that the Aboriginal embassy played a key role in bringing an end to the McMahon government, not just bringing an end to the McMahon government, but 23 years of conservative government. There had never been anything but a conservative government in my entire lifetime by the time Whitlam was elected, you know. So the embassy was a, a, probably the most effective political action of the Aboriginal political movement in the 20th century. Is it in this same context, Gary, that you're also forging alliances with Palestinian activists and Palestinian solidarity because... One of the things that you identify with is Black Palestinian solidarity, but not in, you know, not in the ways that, for example, authors like Alex Lubin and Michael Fishbach and Keith Feldman have documented that historic era, but 
in a different place and a different time in, in Australia. Is this the, the, the context that gives rise to that solidarity? And are you identifying yourselves as a Black Palestinian movement? The connection between uh, our struggle and the Palestinian struggle comes in during, uh, I think it was October 1973, uh, by which time I'm now living in Melbourne and I'm um, spending a lot of time at Monash University in Melbourne with my mentor and friend Bruce McGuinness, who was a significant Aboriginal political activist of that era. He's the man who introduced the term black power into Australia. And he was studying, he was studying at Melbourne University at the time, and I used to go uh, with him to Monash every day. And one day in October 1973, during the Yom Kippur War, we, Bruce and I arrived at, uh, on campus. We walked into the student union where the Jewish students of Monash University, Jew, Monash University had a very significant Jewish student population at the time and today. And we walked into the student union and we knew that the Jewish students had set up a uh, table in the student union raising money for the state of Israel. Uh, and we hadn't taken much notice of it at first when it was there, but this morning we walked into the union and we came across a gang of people, a gang of Jewish students, beating up a single guy. Now, the world that Bruce and I came from, you know, you don't have 12 people beating up one person. You know, that offended our sensibility. That, and so we jumped in to try and uh, stop these people from beating up this guy. And when we did that, these Jewish students started beating us up. Then when there was also a large, significant left-wing bunch of students at Monash at the time, and when they saw Bruce and I being beaten up, they jumped in and this huge brawl started. And in the midst of the brawl, Bruce and I managed to grab the guy who'd been, beat, been being beaten up and we dragged him out and rescued him and pulled him aside. And we said to him, what was that all about? And he said, I'm a Palestinian. <laughs> we said, one Palestinian in this university, which is a hotbed of Zionism. You know? And so it was through meeting this man that we became more aware. We, he became really close friends with us. His name was Muhammad Ali. We, he became really close friends with us. And it was him who, be, who made us more aware and, and began our understanding of the situation and the struggle of the Palestinian people. And almost immediately, uh, we realised that, this, well, we understood, Bruce and I realised that what he was describing to us had, that had happened to the Palestinian people was pretty much effectively the same as what had happened to us. And so we were instantly able to identify uh, as people whose, whose lands had been effectively invaded, occupied and stolen and were, you know, were continuing to be oppressed. And so uh, that's how we came to uh, develop our first association with um, the Palestinian movement. And at the time, Australia had uh, a representative in Canberra, the Palestinian Liberation of the PLO, uh, a man called Ali Kazak, who uh, I got, we, we got to know quite well and we had many meetings with him and many of his uh, Palestinian associates in Australia, especially in Melbourne. And uh, I, in fact, uh, went on in association with Ali, uh, with um, Ali Kazak, opened the first ever Palestinian art exhibition in Australia in Melbourne in the late 1970s, which um, had an interesting effect upon me because uh, 
from that moment on, um, I was uh, tainted, according to the Jewish community in Australia, as being anti-Semitic. You know, it's you know the same old story, but it wasn't something that worried me. I mean, we've staunchly um, ever since maintained our support for the, the for the struggle for the Palestinian people. We see there, as I often say, used to say to Ali Kazak, "Your struggle is our struggle." Simple as that. Did it develop into a synergy, Gary? Did it develop into a particular analytic of either Palestinian Aboriginal or Black Palestinian solidarity? Or did it become part of a, a broad framework that Aboriginal struggle adopted and seeing themselves as part of a, a broader global struggle? We'd already um, thought of ourselves as a part of a broader global struggle. We, after our initial fascination, if you like, or, you know, with the uh, Black Panther Party and the radical part of the um, African-American civil rights movement, and, you know, Malcolm X was one of the key people who who was influential in our thinking in the early part when I was about 18 and 19. But then we became aware of uh, the situation with the uh, Native American people. Russell Means became one of my heroes of the American Indian Movement. We developed strong uh, links with the American Indian Movement in, in the United States, also with Native groups in Canada. We uh, had already had connections with people involved in the, the struggle for independence in places in Africa and throughout Asia. Uh, and in doing so, you know, the, 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 our awareness then of the Palestinian thing was yet another part of our understanding of colonialism and imperialism and how they affected uh, not just us, but they affected many other peoples around the world in similar situations to us. Palestinians people's struggle and our struggle are still going on, you know, and uh, probably as far from achieving our mutual aims as we've ever been. But as long as there's a strong resistance, that's important. But preceding this particular present moment, the historical kind of legacies of this, I mean, aside from the fact of general acceptance that these struggles are very similar that they're shared, that this is a joint struggle for liberation against imperialism and against racism. How did that manifest um, in the 1970s after you meet Muhammad Ali, after you meet Ali Kazak? Um, how does that manifest itself? Is there a strong Palestinian presence and movement in Australia at the time? Or does, this, uh, does the liberation of Palestine become part of the Black Power movement? own articulation of freedom? It was always all about solidarity. I mean, the Palestinian community in Australia at the time, back in the 70s, was very small, um, in many ways just as impoverished as our communities were. So the the main expressions of solidarities was uh, through us um, uh, uh, becoming involved in and encouraging uh, other, particularly the student protest movement in Australia, to hold demonstrations in support of the Palestinian struggle. It involved meetings, um, probably fairly clandestine meetings in Australia between various representatives, mainly at that time with the PLO because they seemed to be the um, main uh, group that was uh, doing anything in Australia anyway. And it was about um, mutually assisting each other in raising awareness and consciousness within the Australian community about each of our 
struggles and uh, there was some really strong bonds developed between us but it was it was more a question of us also educating uh, and making our people aware as much as anything else of uh, what the real situation in uh, Palestine was you know because there were many Aboriginal people who had been you know conned and encouraged by the Jewish community here to think of uh, Aboriginal people as having a similar situation to the to the Jewish people in Israel, which some of us here thought was quite bizarre. And, you know, there are still some very prominent Aboriginal leaders in Australia today who have accepted uh, invitations by the government of Israel to go and visit and, uh, you know, uh, become part of the uh, uh, broader advocacy of uh, the state of Israel in Australia, which to my way of thinking is is a very bizarre sort of thing, but, you know, that. There's uh, Benedict Arnold's Uncle Tom's in all uh, people's struggles, I suppose. And so where does it stand right now? Because the Palestinian community in Australia has grown significantly and has now organized itself in ways that's both uh, a bit conservative in that it targets uh, members of parliament and it's attempting to change policies and, and to be part of, not successfully recently, but to change government. Um, that would be more sympathetic to Palestinians, and that's a little bit more radical, that is aligning itself with indigenous movements that continue to struggle against forced displacement and against land theft. And a lot of this, obviously, is reflecting, um, is both a continuity of of the conservative and the radical, as well as ruptures that were created by the dissolution of the PLO in many ways in the aftermath of the Oslo peace process. We've um, made contact in recent times with APAN, um, which is the, seems to be the major Palestinian representative body in Australia at the moment. I, I must say I was a bit surprised at just how wealthy the Palestinian community in Australia now is, which is probably a contributing factor to the more conservative uh, approach. I feel sad in a way that, you know, and I don't necessarily think it's for me to say, but I feel it's sad in a way that they are, they have adopted some of the tactics that they have because I'm not sure how far that's going to get them. But hopefully by making now establishing contact with some of the more conservative elements within the Palestinian community, hopefully this conference that we're trying to organise, which they incidentally are supporting in sufficient way that keeps me happy, I think that what we do with this Palestinian Solidarity Conference hopefully will um, encourage them to become, APAN in particular, to become more involved in our struggle. There are individuals within that organisation who uh, I believe are going are going to take a much more high-profile sort of role in terms of supporting us. Um, they now know the extent and the strength of the support that that exists in our community, and that's all part of the idea of bring, pulling this conference together. I'm not familiar with Palestinian Indigenous relationships in Australia, and is the vision that there's going to be greater articulation of solidarity from both ends, is the vision that there is going to be a greater ability to argue for a common future, one that's both for Australia as well as for Palestinians. Are there any have the, what is envisioned or is this the idea to come together to create that vision? The idea behind the conference is to do that, to firstly 
bring the two peoples together, important peoples from uh, the Palestinian community in Australia and Palestinian people from other parts of the diaspora to come to talk with us. I've Some of the most important Aboriginal academics and leaders will be uh, uh, hopefully going to be at this conference in October. By bringing us all together, there's the opportunity to develop a stronger set of priorities or strategies for the future. But it's also, so it's partly to do with that. It's also partly to say to the rest of Australia, hey, look, you know, there is a large Palestinian community in Australia. These are the issues that exist for the Palestinian people. These are the issues that exist for Aboriginal people. Here's where those, the issues for both these communities, both here in Australia and in Palestine, occupied Palestine, here's where they converge. And it's about time Australians realised that, uh, you know, there are strong similarities between the, the historical situation and struggle of the Palestinian people and the Aboriginal people in Australia. I mean, my hope is that by bringing us all together, we can develop a much stronger and more effective uh, plan or whatever for the, uh, strategy for the future for both our communities, both the Palestinian community in Australia, the Palestinian community in occupied Palestine and the Aboriginal community uh, all over Australia. In terms of, of men, you know, deliberately meant to be uh, a bit of a provocation for thinking, but why Aboriginal solidarity with Palestinians as opposed to, you know, Aboriginal solidarity could be today with Yemenis, for example, who are facing war or with the Rohingya or who are facing ethnic cleansing or with, you know, native communities who are continuing also to, in North America, who are also continuing to struggle against settler colonialism. But the emphasis on, you know, a, an international conference on Aboriginal Palestinian solidarity, why that in particular? That in particular because of the, I mean, apart from anything else, like I said, because of the dominance of uh, one side of the story in Australia, you know, in terms of the Palestinian-Israeli thing. I mean, the, the, the Zionists uh, have a complete monopoly on um, virtually all information and understanding and support of uh, what's going on in, in occupied Palestine. That's part of it. I mean, it doesn't, in the long term, uh, the, the strategy, I believe, of the Aboriginal political movement here doesn't exclude anyone. I mean, amongst my students that I've got in the university I teach are now large numbers of um, students from the Sudan and other places like that. And there's there's links beginning between them and us as well through this, through a lot of the stuff that my Sudanese students and others from the Horn of Africa who are in my class learn about the history of our struggle here. They, they relate to the stuff that I'm talking about. And, and among the younger generation of Aboriginal political activists around at the moment, there are really strong links developing between some of those. Also between, there's an incredibly strong links between the, a young group here called WAR, the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. These are a young group of people who are doing extraordinary things. Uh, in Melbourne this year on Invasion Day, the 26th of January, they managed to get 80,000 people onto the streets of Melbourne marching in opposition to uh, the celebration of Australia Day. Now that's I haven't seen demonstrations that big in Australia since our days in the 1970s. So this new young, uh, younger generation of Aboriginal political activists have also spent time, have visited and been 
been uh, involved in uh, uh, demonstrations in, uh, in America with the Native American groups there who are fighting against mining there in uh, Canada uh, and in South America. So, you know, that it's, it's all, I mean, the back in the 1970s, the, the solidarity that people were expressing with other colonised uh, and oppressed people was probably much stronger because of the intensity of what was going on in 1968 and around that time with, uh, with the so-called winds of change blowing through the colonised world, um, with uh, decolonisation happening all over the place. Uh, like I say, you know, with Ho uh, Chi Minh and others kicking the, the French colonists out of, out, of, uh, out of Indochina with the emergence of really strong um, independence-minded groups in the Pacific who we uh, developed incredibly strong uh, links with. I mean, in this particular instance, I decided that the palette, it's about time we were more open with our support of the Palestinian people, that it was about time Australia had a more um, rational and balanced um, debate about the situation in what's going on in Israel, in uh, in the Australian community. Um, and what better way to help foster that than to draw the parallels between our situation as Aboriginal people and the situation of Palestinian people today. I mean, in, in lots of ways, it's my personal <laughs> Crusade, if you like, you know. I've never forgotten seeing that. Still, that image in my in my mind of when we walked, when Bruce and I walked into Monash University that day in October 1973, has stayed with me ever since. And in certain ways, it's it's symbolic of what continues to happen in in uh, Palestine now. You know, a big bunch of bullies kicking the shit out of you know a more defenceless crew. I know that's a bad analogy, I suppose. I don't know. No, I mean, it's just really interesting that after, you know, there's still a particular resonance and an affective, you know, relationship with the Palestinian people that feels slightly more personal. And it's it's a very emotional one, too. I, you know, every day I pick up my newspaper, I look at the television and I see what continues to happen there today. Um, it it emotionally affects me, you know. In the same way as in the same way as when I pick up a newspaper and I read about the latest Aboriginal person who's died in jail, or you know the the constant ongoing um, uh, denigration and oppression of our people here, it's not that difficult to emotionally respond and 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 feel uh, for the situation of other people in similar situations to us. And I feel the same when I, you know, see people in other parts of the world too. But in, in terms of the Palestinians, it's a, it's a strong uh, emotional thing for me, you know. So I suppose that's just a personal thing, but it is. And especially, like I said, given the almost daily television and newspaper reports that we see of the situation in the West Bank and, the, you know, especially with Trump and 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 some of his, you know, his son-in-law and his lunatics um, wandering around, you know, creating even worse situation for people, you know. And uh, it just sort of, having sort of followed and watched the situation um, over there for so long and ha- having, when I was young, having had such strong emotional connections there, those emotional connections and those emotional sort of feelings persist. How can they not, you know, until until both our peoples have got justice? And for that matter, all people who are oppressed in the world have got justice. Something I'll never see before I die, but, you know, you can always 
uh, hope and keep fighting, keep struggling for it. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, you, you've articulated the sense that, you know, things are much better than when you were 18 in 1968. And as a result of struggle, have gotten to a position where conditions are much different. The course of history has changed. And so that that struggle certainly continues. And it's the, it's the commitment to one another and it's a commitment to a global vision that I think is key. Um, we're excited to see what comes of the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference that you are planning in Australia. And it sounds like it continues to draw on, you know, a lot of inspiration from the United States as the Aboriginal movement has drawn inspiration from the United States in the past. So it'll be really interesting to see what comes of this work? And I hope that we continue our conversation, that um, we'll have you again on Status Hour, and I'll be able to continue this conversation with you personally. Absolutely. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And we look forward uh, to speaking with you again soon. No problem. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.